0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show.
1: Let's start with the NBA. Philadelphia and Toronto played last night. Started Denver and Portland. Normally, either one of them would be the big story this morning. But this is not normal. Because Game 2 of the Rockets and Warriors is this evening. And right now, that game is blotting out the sun. That matchup is. Well, actually, not the matchup. But... The officiating of the matchup. What this is now is the Toby in Houston series. Three of the key players are Toby guys. Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. Great to have you on. Thank you. Hey,
2: Jim, can you do me a favor? You got it. Can you say, uh, can you say what's up to Toby in Houston for me?
1: Yo, Toby in Houston, what up?
2: All right, man, appreciate that. Do
1: you, do you know who that is, though, Kevin? Or did somebody feed that to you?
2: Yeah, that's my man. That's, I know who it is. Who is it? Uh, it's one of my guy's best friends.
1: All right, man, you're being straight, right? You know You know the story behind Toby, right? Yeah. <laughs> what? Say it again. What's the story behind Toby? Oh,
2: that's Larry Brown's guy, right?
1: That was way back in 2010. So Kevin Durant, one of the Toby guys. Now you knew that, which you may not recall, however. Is that Chris Paul also is a Toby in Houston guy? This goes back to 2011. And, and everybody on my Twitter told me to ask you about Toby from Houston. Listen, my man, do you know, what they're, do you know why they're asking you to ask me that? No, tell me. It's not good for your look. <sighs> okay. You know, I'll tell you the story sometime, just not on the air. All right, thanks a lot too, Jim. Thanks for having me, man. Chris Paul in the jungle. 2011. And the clones got to him about Toby and Houston. You imagine that Chris freaking Paul shouted out to Toby and Houston and had no idea who Toby and Houston was. Like that was a thing. That sort of thing really did happen. Now, the third guy, of course, is Andrew Bogut. Now, Andrew Bogut, on the other hand, knew about Toby and Houston. You gonna come out to the game in Houston? If I can get on that Andrew Bogut jet, I might come out. You know, we'll beer you or two after. Toby, hmm, is I'll tell you, can you get Toby to come?
2: Well, that's your guy. Give him a buzz, give him a call, and you can <laughs> sit side and have a few, have a few beers, kick, kick a few back, and enjoy the game.
1: Best thing about that—that that was not 2010, that was not 2011, that was yesterday. Andrew Bogut bringing the heat. My man went instant legend. So what I'm saying is, this is the Toby from Houston series. Now we should be talking about that. We should be talking about how Houston responds to what Kevin Durant was doing offensively in Game 1. We should be talking about whether or not Steph Curry is going to be healthier in this game. We should be talking about what adjustments the Warriors are going to make to Eric Gordon or how James Harden can get his groove back. We should be talking about all those things. Instead, we're talking about the officiating. And if you thought the ref talk after Game 1 was bad, it only hit new heights. There was Steve Kerr showing up at his media session yesterday and trying to draw a foul That's himself.
0: Good. Good. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> oh, Who's, foul on? Foul. Who's that foul on? Is that right? on Ann? on
1: yeah. Let me tell you something. My guy, that is some quality trolling right there. And then there was Daryl Morey tweeting out a link to Steve Kerr complaining about the officiating in the past, More quality trolling. The Rockets are bent. We know this. And according to an ESPN report from yesterday, they worked up a report to send to the league that lists 81 calls, non calls, and violations that they believe cost them the game. Except it was not game one, it was not Sunday's game, it was from last year's series. And it wasn't Game 1 of the 2019 series. It was Game 7 of the 2018 series, May 28th. Houston worked up a memo outlining all the calls that were made and shouldn't have been made. And the ones that weren't made that should have been made. And they didn't send out that memo. But ultimately, it got out yesterday. And it includes a passage like this. And I quote, Referees likely changed the eventual NBA champion. There can be no worse result for the NBA, end quote. So, according to that report, the referees cost the Rockets game seven and the wrong team won the NBA championship. (laughs) So, the refs, according to this, the refs changed the outcome of the game and the eventual champion in a game Houston lost by nine points at home. Listen, this right here, is a big Rockets house. I've got a ton of respect for Daryl Morey and what he's done. James Harden is one of the best players in the history of the NBA. P.J. Tucker is awesome. One of my favorites. He's awesome. This, however, is not awesome. In fact, this is terrible. It's embarrassing. It's like the worst look imaginable. I know everybody tries to work the refs. I know that's part of the game. But living with the results is also part of the game. Hell, playing the game is part of the game. And if you're working up reports on eighty-one different calls in a game and saying that the referees, quote, likely changed the eventual NBA champion, that's a terrible look. It sounds like message board material. Like a message board rant, not a factual argument. I mean come on, Houston, you gotta be better than that. You have to be. You think the Warriors don't have a list of a dozen or two calls that they would like to see go differently? or the Bucs, or the Celtics, or every other team. It's part of the game. It sucks, but you got to get over it. You have to get over it from last year, and you have to get over it from Sunday. And I certainly would not advise having reports leak out where you appear to be attempting to shame or bully the league when it comes to refereeing, right? Again, I get it. You came this close to a spot in the NBA Finals. It sucks to lose that way. But what's next? The Jazz coming up with a memo and a video breakdown of MJ pushing off on Brian Russell back in 1998? Look, working the refs is part of the game. Phil Jackson did it. Pat Riley did it. Everybody does it. But this isn't just about working the refs. Now you're challenging the integrity and the league's integrity. And it sounds like some whack conspiracy theory. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe it works. Maybe it works, but if it doesn't, it's a horrible statement. Hell, if it does, it's a horrible statement. Because then every team is going to be putting together PowerPoint presentations about how they got jammed too. Again, again, I understand working the refs. I understand selling a call, but they're selling a call and there's flailing and flopping like you were tased every time there's incidental contact. And then everybody's going to start doing it. Why wouldn't they if it works for Houston? Don't tase me, bro. And then every series is going to be ruined as a result. So, this is the series we've been talking about all season. The series we've been looking forward to all season. We should be talking about the players and not the refs. Can't imagine Adam Silver is too pumped about having one of the teams in the league handle their business this way. But then again, what's the league to do? What is the league to do? oh wait, there's this, the announcement of the referees for tonight's game. Because that's an issue, right? So if you're into conspiracy theories, and judging by Twitter, a hell of a lot of you are, there was the possibility of a certain ref working game too. So for the first time in history, people were really paying attention to the announcement of the officiating crew. Here it is, Alvin, can you hit me with some intro music? Can you hit me with some Alan Parsons project? Because these guys are the biggest story tonight. Not the players, the Zebras. Here is your starting lineup for game two of the 29 Western Conference Playoff Series between the Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors. Number 42. In his 15th season out of Bethune-Cookman, Eric Lewis. Eric Lewis. Number 14 in his 17th season at a Philadelphia University, Ed Malloy! And in the middle, the man in his 25th season, you know him, you love him, from the University of Maryland, Scott Foster! Oh, hell yes. I am here for it. Scott freaking Foster, The same Scott Foster who Chris Paul and James Harden have an ongoing feud with. Paul and Harden fouled out the last Rockets game that Foster refed. Chris Paul said after that game that he had met with the league about Scott Foster. James Harden called Scott Foster, quote, rude and arrogant after that game. Scott Foster, man, he's, uh, you know, I never, I never really talk about a fish game or anything
0: like that, but just just rude and, and, and arrogant,
1: Man, I don't talk about the officials. His name is Scott Foster, F-O-S-T-E-R. As you know, I'm a paid pro. And as a pro at keeping you clones in line and interviewing the right people in sports at the right time, I've got some more simple advice for you. When you're looking for pro tips on vehicle maintenance or repair, look no further than O'Reilly Auto Parts. When it comes to replacing your battery, getting advice on proper car maintenance, or even just getting the best bang for your buck, their expert team can help you out every step of the way. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Chase Elliott is my guest. Chase, great to have you back. How are you? Yeah, man, you're way too nice. Way too nice. You made you made that sound okay. I can't lie to you, Chase. I'm pretty proud of myself for that. That was a good intro, but you earned it. You did all those things, Chase. Take me back to Sunday, and in particular that final lap, because that was wild. What was going through your head as all of that played out?
3: Yeah, Sunday was was definitely special. Um, I'm I'm from North Georgia, and you know Talladega is obviously very very close to there so it kind of felt like a home race a little bit for me and and uh yeah last last was pretty wild we've you know it come to the white there and everybody was still was still packed up we were fortunate enough to be leading and uh w- was in a position there to kind of just try to defend Um uh, back around was expecting the guys behind me to make some moves um and i think they were gearing up to do that and and then the guys um Midway through the pack there got caught up in a wreck and, um, obviously once the caution came out because we had taken the white flag, the race was, the race was, was over. So, um, definitely had some, had some fortune there, but it was, uh, it was a great day, great afternoon, a a special win and, and nice to, uh, you know, get a, get a win this early in the season. It's a big deal
1: chase Elliott joining us he is the driver of the number nine so chase when you're racing like that and you win what's the biggest emotion when you cross the line is it relief that it's over or is there exhilaration that you won that race the way you did
3: well i think both you know i mean sunday was was special for a lot of reasons but just the way it ended you know an ending you know the field was frozen when the caution came out so i was more at the particular point in time just making sure that you know, the race is over and that we actually have won and that was it. Um, you know, a lot of, certainly can be a lot of confusion there with, with how all that works, but, uh, you know, luckily just, just enjoying the moment. It's so And it's so hard to enjoy those moments, too, because things happen so fast and, you know, you, you get out of the car, they want to, you know, get an interview and everything else. So it's just um, important to take in those moments, in my opinion, and, you know, you wish you could just freeze time and, 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 and soak it in more, but Try to do as best you can and, and um, yeah, enjoy
1: it with those around you. Chase Elliott is our guest. You know, When you talk about taking those moments, you and I have talked in the past about the fact that you are the most popular driver, and it's an honor I know you take very seriously. After the win, it seemed like there was such a connection between you and the crowd at Talladega. How would you describe that feeling after the win and then seeing the reaction from the crowd?
3: Yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, the, the people there were, were absolutely fired up. Uh, it was, it was the coolest thing ever just to, to experience that I've, you know, I've been there many, you know, many times when Dale has done well, Dale Jr. and, and has won, I think he won a race there in 2015, just a two few years ago. And, and I remember how excited and how fired up the crowd was for, for him, never would have thought that people would have been, uh, that fired up to, to see us do good, you know? And that's just a moment that, um. Can't ever take for granted, and in a situation that may not always be that way. I mean, you never know how time goes. People might not like you next year, or the year after, or whatever. So, uh, just uh, a, a special time, and I've never, I've never felt that, you know, that tight of a connection with the crowd at a race before. It was. It was like I said, just
1: unbelievable. Chase Elliott is the driver of the number nine. You know, Chase, also that's a track where your father, Bill, won twice in the 80s. He put up that iconic 212.809 mile per hour lap in 87. So in a way, did that almost feel like a home race for you? And what does it mean to win there because of that?
3: Yeah, well, definitely. It's always a little bit like home just because I am close to there uh, where I live. And I, I think dad's history certainly adds to that. But Really, the biggest thing that that kind of capped that all off was just the crowd and and um, and their emotion after the race. You know, for them to stick around and and um, you know, a lot of folks were, were still there. You know, a good while after the checkered flag had, had been displayed to see an interview or, or see us go to victory lane, which is which is neat. You don't always see that. And um, like I said, just that connection I felt like I had with the crowd. On Sunday, and, and their genuine passion to want to see my team do good was um, honestly something I've never experienced before. So, yes, yeah, definitely felt like a home race, and I think that's a lot because of uh, the people.
1: We're talking to Chase Elliott for a few more moments. Now, one of the other talking points, Chase, coming out of the race, was the fact that it snapped Ford's seven-race winning streak at Talladega. How significant was that to you?
3: Well, certainly nice to to get a bow tie back in victory lane, and, and it was. You know, really a big a big team Chevy effort. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of great Chevrolet teammates throughout the day. As you know, racing at, at Talladega and Daytona, it's a lot about who your friends are and and how your teammates are going to be committed to one another. Um, and there was a, a large commitment from from Team Chevy on Sunday to to, to get that win and, and get that done. So you know, I think all those drivers deserve a lot of credit, and certainly can't do it by yourself. So you went a long way.
1: Listen, speaking of the team, before you go, there's a lot made about the relationship between a driver and his crew chief, but you were to quick were quick to credit to your race spotter, Eddie Haunt, as well. What is it about Eddie and the connection the two of you have that works so well?
3: Well, I think, you know, we have a few years of, of working together, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's still a lot of room for improvement as time goes, but I just think, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. I think I can still learn more about him but I've learned a lot from the standpoint of I kind of know what he means when he says certain things and I think he knows the moves and the things that I like to do and how I like to race and, and, and as you grow that relationship um, I think you find some comfort in that and find some confidence and I think the more, the more you go into those races with the more confidence you have going into them um, are, are really just going to help you anywhere but especially those play tracks. He and I have a lot of dialogue throughout the day and growing that confidence and building that and, and building that trust goes uh, goes a lot further than you think.
1: We're talking to Chase Elliott. And then finally, you're returning to Dover this Sunday. It's a place where you passed Denny Hamlin in turn one and two after a restart on lap 403 to win barely by a quarter of a second. What do you remember about that race and that finish?
3: Yeah, it was a, another great day um, last fall at Dover, so just, you know, to kind of be heading back there after after having a win there in the fall you know i'm looking forward to getting back um always have to kind of keep in mind just because you run good somewhere one time doesn't mean it's going to go great for you the next time either but uh definitely had a good car there last fall had some misfortune early in the race and was able to uh able to recover that some good pit stops and, and things and got ourselves in position there at the end to to get a win so hopefully we can Pack it up, get two in a row this weekend, and and, uh, move on down the road.
1: Let me tell you about the Johnny-O experience. I have been rocking my Johnny-O so often. I absolutely love this product. I love the company. Here's why. Johnny-O invented and patented the tweener button. It's the hidden button between the second and third button, which is featured on all Johnny-O shirts. The tweener button is the first patented button to make sure that you're not too buttoned up and you're not too unbuttoned. This hidden button solves the age-old second button dilemma. Do you button one or do you button two? That's no longer an issue. Now you know. Every Johnny O shirt comes with her patented tweener button, so you can always look just right. It is a total game-changer. And right now, you can use the promo code Rome and get 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com at checkout through May 30th. 20% off the regular price button-ups, which come in a range of fabrics, patterns, and styles. And shipping is free for orders over $85. Johnny-O.com, promo code Rome and get 20% off your first order and free shipping on orders over $85. Once again, go to Johnny-O.com for your tweener shirt, 20% off. Check out the wide selection of shirts and other products, ranging from polos to shirts, pants, swim, and more. Johnny-O.com. All right, so after game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals, Kawhi Leonard looked unstoppable. The Toronto Raptors actually looked unbeatable, and the North looked ready to march into Philadelphia up two games. The Raptors had all the mo, and the Sixers were on their heels. And that was before this tweet from NBC Phillies Serena Winters. Quote, Joel Embiid will not attend shootaround. He is listed as probable for tonight's game with gastroenteritis. End quote. So tough enough to take down a Raptors team that had Kawhi And Pascal going for 74 points on 74% shooting, but even tougher to do it when your big fella is locked in a one on one battle with gastroenteritis, aka the stomach flu, aka diarrhea, aka the great equalizer. Diarrhea is the great equalizer. Think about it. Diarrhea doesn't care who the hell you are, it's coming. He doesn't care who you are or what you do or where you are. He's coming. That's what makes the guy so dangerous. Now, I don't know if this is some great urban myth or legend, and I can only say that I've heard this. I've never known anybody to try this. I don't know whether or not it works, but I've heard this from more than one source. You know, I got cops who listen to the program. Tell me if it's true. I've heard that about the only way to get out of a speeding ticket is to play that card. Okay, I will own that take. I will stand by that take. And there are a lot of lockdown defenders left in the NBA playoffs, except nobody's got a grip, quite like the big equalizer. So heading into game two, and it felt like pretty much a must win for the Sixers. Enough to worry about not having to slow down Kawhi and Pascal and Kyle and a sniper off the bench like my man Fred Van Fleet. On top of all of that, they had to worry about their big fella lacing up the high tops after going 16 rounds with the one man who will step into the ring with anybody at any time and throw down. Just ask Joel. Man, if you've
0: had whatever the name is, if you had if you the uh, before.
1: Uh, Joe? <laughs> Joe?
0: <laughs> uh, if you've had it before, you, you would know how it feels, but... Um, this-
1: Now That's what makes that win even more impressive, if you've had that before. And we all have. The Sixers did not just stare down the Raptors, they stared down the equalizer. And they did it in one of the most macho ways ever, by locking it down. The only thing more impressive than going toe-to-toe with the big E is locking down the Raptors' offense, especially one that was lethal in game one. Brett Brown took the Sixers' defensive game plan, and he flushed it. A total change from game one, and it caught the Raptors by surprise. Help defenders, bum rush Kawhi. Ben Simmons got a sign number two that put freaky length and athleticism on freaky length and athleticism. I mean, sure, Kawhi got his 35, but did so on 13 and 24 shooting, and he had to work for everything he got. And he even tipped his cap post game, saying this about the Sixers' defensive tweaks: "Quote, they did a good job. Honestly, got to give them credit." Simmons is long, end quote. And then my man, Joel, who was so badly banged up pregame that he was hooked up to an IV, took care of Pascal. Siakam, 9 of 25 from the floor, 2 of 7 outside. Even the big man left it all out there on defense. And in crunch time, when the Raptors did make their run, it was Joel who still, still found a way to fight through the Big E and do this. And with Siakam helping try to work through two defenders finds Butler Oh Jimmy Butler bullseye You talk about a freaking dime Joel doubled by 7 foot 1 Marcus All and 6 foot 9 Pascal That's like 16 feet of wingspan in his face nobody open Joel does not panic keeps his pivot foot somehow finds Jimmy B open from the outside through the eyes in the back of his head dagger And then to lock the W down and get back to Philly Square with 30 seconds left and a one-point lead. Joel takes the ball at the top of the key, matched up on Gasol, and Joel does this.
0: Out top to Joel, fakes a three, drives on Gasol, spins, fakes, right side, lays it up,
1: and in! Joel at B scores the ball! Man, that is some man's game stuff right there. Joel not having a good night offensively, battling the Big E. Hooked up to an IV before that game. When they needed it, attacked the basket. That's some heroic stuff right there. That's a heroic Monday night in Toronto. Look, I'm not going to take this somewhere crass and immature. I'm sure as hell not going to read any of your emails. The ones that say MJ had his flu game. Joel had his poo game. You're not in fourth grade anymore. But let's be real. The point of this take. The Sixers needed that W. And they needed Joel in order to get that W. A dude who was absolutely ravaged earlier in the day by one of the fiercest enemy combatants the world has ever known, for which there really is no cure. He stares it down. He laces him up. He goes to work. The stat line may not show it, but credit Joel for getting the Sixers on his back, putting the Sixers on his back, and not letting it run down his leg.
0: If you had uh, before, uh, Joe, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> uh, if you had it before, you you would know how it feels. But uh...
1: it was Jimmy Buckets, Howie, Alvin. Oh yeah, Jimmy Butler had something to do with it too last night. John Morosi is my guest. Hey, John, good to have you back. How are you?
4: Jim, my friend, it's always a great uh, pleasure to talk with you, especially at this time of year. we got baseball just finishing the first month. CC Sabathia may get his 3,000th strikeout tonight. And the Stanley Cup playoffs, my friend, I'm not even sure where to begin with all the upsets and the wild cards playing so well.
1: So all that said, where am I going to start? In Toronto, where you were for the long-awaited debut of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Before we get into how he played, John, what does his arrival mean, not only in Canada, but also in the Dominican Republic?
4: Well, Jim, that game on Friday, I think it's important to point out, was broadcast nationally in three countries. It was broadcast nationally in Canada and in the Dominican Republic and in the U.S. as well on MLB Network. And and I think it really speaks to just the... The broad appeal of Vlad Jr. We saw him at the uh, at the Raptors game over the weekend, meeting Drake. He, he really he is is an immediate star, and it's certainly been something that's been building for a while. Also, at the same time, uh, w- with his father's roots in Montreal, of course, he was born in Montreal. His mother uh, lived there for a number of years and and speaks French, so uh, he's got a great cultural connection to Canada. And as Ross Atkins said uh, at the the Blue Jays GM over the weekend, that really Vladdy Jr. understands what it means to play for both a city and a country, uh, and he's really embraced it. So uh, he is someone who, Jim, there there is such great fascination for him in the Dominican Republic. As Jose Moda, who of course himself is uh, one of the sons of a great Dominican baseball family, described Vlade Jr. as, El hijo del país. He is the son of the country. And really, you really got that sense of just how much pride there was for his debut and certainly all the great things to come as well in his career.
1: John Morosi joining us. As long as you put it like that, you did speak with Vlad Sr. before the game, and you did so in Spanish. Now, you and I have talked in the past about the time and the effort that you put in when it comes to learning Spanish. So what did it mean to you to talk with Vladimir and to do so in his language?
4: Well thanks for asking jim it was it was a pleasure for me and and i I really those are the moments that that you train for and, and not being a native speaker of spanish but but something that uh, it's been a big initiative that I've had uh, over the years just taking every chance i have got to to practice the language and, and speak it to people every day that i that I see just out and about in my life away from baseball uh but it helps you get ready for that moment and and to really listen intently and it's interesting that i've I've had uh, a number of interviews where I've done that way, where I've uh, spoken the questions in Spanish and then translated them, and then translated the answers back. And I'll be honest, and I even said to to Senior, I'm I'm not I'm not perfect at this. I, I I'll probably make a mistake. But if you speak slowly, um, then I've got a chance to make this happen. And he, he smiled and, and nodded and was very uh, very engaged in that. And I, and I think that, that for, for baseball players that have grown up and, and, and having to always try to, to, to fight that battle of, of speaking in your second language and trying to understand just in your daily life, uh, they appreciate the, the effort. And, and so when, when I always come to, uh, whether it's a Dominican player or a Venezuelan player, and, and express that, hey, I'm going to make this happen, you can help me by speaking slowly as best you can, and then we'll we'll try to get through this together, there's always that smile and that acknowledgement that we're going to do this and it's going to be great. So I think for me it's been one thing, Jim, where uh, I I would say uh, Dominican Spanish is different from Venezuelan Spanish, different than Mexican Spanish, different than Cuban Spanish. They're all different dialects, and they're all beautiful in their own way. So uh, for me it's been an ongoing process of trying to learn the different vernacular, and that's probably that next step, uh, figuring out those those idioms to be able to uh, help share those stories as best I can.
1: Nicely done. John Morosi is my guest. Now, John, moving on, you can't win a playoff spot or earn a playoff spot in April, but you certainly can lose one. So how worried would you be if you're the defending champion Boston Red Sox? And not only are you not over 500, but you're five games below it and your run differential is a minus 31.
4: Well, that's an excellent point, Jim. And that's really where, the to me, the, the concern comes in, that, that run differential. And, and you look at last year's playoff picture of the 10 teams that made it, nine of them were at 500 or better on this day last year, and the only one that wasn't was the Dodgers. They were below 500, but they had a positive run differential, which indicated to me and to everybody at the time at least uh, that they were probably going to get better as the year went along. That That is not the case for the Red Sox right now. As you point out, uh, one of the worst run differentials in, in the American League, they're below 500, and also they're in the division with the team that has the best record in baseball right now, the Tampa Bay Rays. And oh, by the way, the Yankees have somewhat miraculously won 12 out of 15, despite the fact they've had half their team hurt for the last couple of weeks. So it's, it's really an incredible story. And if, so to me, Jim, if the Red Sox are not better than the Yankees now, when the Yankees are basically at 50%, and how can they possibly expect to be better than the Yankees when the Yankees get back to full strength? So um, I look at the Red Sox rotation, a big start today, tonight for Rick Porcello, Z R A is above seven. Nathan Evaldi, as we know, the postseason hero from last year, he is on the injured list. Chris Sale's gotten off to a bumpy start. The, the bullpen, I believe, the middle part is, is really um, showing, I think, that the, the, the lack of strength that not having Craig Kimbrell has had now on, on the rest of the bullpen. Ryan Brazier's done well in the ninth inning, but if there's been a trickle-down effect of the middle part of the game not being as strong. So I think offensively the, they're starting to click a little bit, but to me, Jim, I'm just worried about the lack of consistency day in, day out. Even in a game they won last night, Eduardo Rodriguez does not get out of the fifth inning. I am very concerned about the defending World Series champion.
1: John Morosi joins us for a few more moments. John, go back to the Yankees. It's amazing. As you point out, they've won 12 of 15. They've won 9 of 10. The number of their injuries that they've suffered this far is incredible. How do you explain them being six games over 500?
4: Well, it's a great point, Jim, because to me, the way they've been able to play, and it's an excellent question, I think the answer is their depth. Uh, and they've been able to have some young players come up from the minor leagues they weren't really counting on. Domingo Herman is one example in the rotation. I believe he's 5-1 and one with a sub-3 ERA. He's been sensational. Masahiro Tanaka uh, has pitched like an ace as well. Uh, James Paxton has settled in a bit. And even with the, the, the bullpen injury to Dellen Betances. That's why they've got Zach Britton. They've got Adam Adovino. It's remarkable that a bullpen could lose someone of Batances' caliber and really not miss a beat. Tommy Canley has come back and pitched quite well for them. In the lineup... All the credit for me, not not all the credit, but a lot of the credit has to go to Luke Voigt. Luke Voigt is someone who last year maybe was looked upon as being a nice little short-term story. They weren't really sure if he was going to be able to sustain his success. Well, he has, and in many ways, Jim, he's been the Yankees' most reliable hitter. So who would have thought, on a team with all these stars and superstars,
1: uh, big names
4: that Luke Voit would be the most consistent, <laughs> best offensive player for this team in the month of April, but that is exactly what has happened for the Bronx Bombers.
1: No doubt. John Morosi joining us for a few more moments. John, I've got to ask you about Cody Bellinger. He had a couple of hits in an RBI last night. That raised his batting average to 434. 14 home runs, 37 RBI. He leads the league in nearly every hitting category. How impressive has he been so far? And then how does that first month stack up with some of the best starts to a season in baseball history?
4: Well, Jim, that's it, it, actually a great topic we, we were discussing here uh, last night on uh, F- FS1's Emily Around, where, where really the point was made that this may be actually the best start to a season we have ever seen wow. uh, offensively. That actually his pace, he's got more hits at this point in time, than Nitro did in his record-setting year, uh, more total bases than Ruth in his record-setting year, more RBI than Hack Wilson, more, more home runs even than Barry Bonds uh, back during his record-setting year, Jim. So you could make the argument, I, I think pretty forcefully, this might be the best all-around start to a season we have ever seen. Remarkable numbers. And I think, too, those 37 RBI. Now, I realize that RBI may or may not be the best way to measure hitting, but just think about that and multiply it even by five and then you pace it out So the rest of the, the, rest of the season. That is an incredible amount of, of, of RBI that he's on pace for there, where, frankly, it's, we have not seen that level of RBI in the season in a very, very long time. He's got a great uh, offense to hit in, and his overall swing adjustments, Jim, I give him so much credit. He was, I think, on some level exposed the last couple of playoffs, that he had a weakness, he addressed it, and we are seeing the results right now. It has been extraordinary to watch. Bellinger play in the month of April.
1: John, isn't that true? He had a great rookie season. He seemed to take a step back last year and especially in the postseason, but he has adjusted. All right, John, before you go, you are a man of many talents, many languages, many interests. That said, what was your reaction when you saw that Steve Iserman would be coming back to the Red Wings?
4: Uh, love that question, Jim, and excited, of course. Uh, I love working for both MLB Network and NHL Network, and I get to cover my Western Conference Finals here coming up on the NHL side, so can't wait for that. Uh, but, but to me, Iserman, and being a Michigander, uh, it, it was a story that the people of, of, of Michigan and the sports fans there in Detroit needed. Uh, Detroit has not had one of its pro sports teams win a playoff round or a game in the case of the Lions since the 2013 ALCS with the Tigers. It's been a rough five, six years here, and so to see uh, this happen, I think, really rejuvenated a lot of the the confidence that the the Red Wings fans have in their organization. I think it was a great, uh, respectful gesture by Ken Holland to make this happen, and really, I think, it it really fortifies his legacy as being one of the great executives Detroit's ever seen. And also, Jim, to bring it back around to the global view here, it tells you that just getting into the dance, you get into the playoffs, and you can go. I mean, we've got all four wildcard teams in the National Hockey League are all still open and playing here in the playoffs. One of them, of course, is up 2 nothing with the Hurricanes on the Islanders. An amazing story. We've got two more games tonight, uh, two, two more game threes to break those 1-1 ties. It's, just, it's been an extraordinary playoff. New blood, new talent. Uh, the, the avalanche, it's, it's like shades of the late 90s. You've got the avalanche and the stars still both involved. So uh, it's great to see. And, and in many ways, you could actually argue, Nathan McKinnon, as some of my Canadian colleagues were telling me last week when I was in Toronto, Nathan McKinnon might be the best player left in these playoffs. So certainly time to learn about the great player that he is there out in Colorado.
1: It is another reason why I always say the NHL postseason is the best postseason. And remember, you can watch John across MLB Network's programming, including on its morning show, MLB Central, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. And you're going to want to read his work on MLB.com. John Morosi, good friend of the program. John, so good to have you back. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
4: Jim, it's my pleasure, my friend. look forward to many conversations here as the uh, baseball year goes along. My Me friend. too, Thank John. You so Thank
1: you so much. Clones, you know what I'm about, and you know what this show is about. In fact, if I were to boil this show down to a single word, it would be performance. Now, what about your life? Maybe you've got an important meeting or a business trip. Maybe you're going to fight the afternoon crash. Sometimes you just need a boost, but you want an alternative to coffee or sugary energy drinks. I get that. In fact, I discovered something that will help you take your game to the next level. It's called Dawn to Dusk by Brickhouse Nutrition. Dawn to Dusk was designed to be a healthier, more effective alternative to typical energy supplements. With as little caffeine as a single cup of coffee, Dawn to Dusk provides up to 10 hours of clean energy. It heightens focus and it improves your mood. And unlike that coffee or energy drink, there are no jitters or crash. Simply clean energy and focus without calories or sugar. So go to brickhouserome.com. Brickhouserome.com. Get 15% off your first order with the offer code ROME. 100% guaranteed. You've got nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. I use the product. I love it. Brickhouserome.com. Brickhouserome.com. And you know I love hockey. But to that, I have to say, man, slow your roll. NHL fan, I get it. I get it. I like hockey. I understand hockey. I know hockey. And even though a lot of people do not like hockey, I love it. And I'll say that. And I'm going to stand by what I always say. The NHL postseason is the best postseason. I've got your back, but I'm also here to keep you honest. And if you're going to tell me that the Rockets flopping around in Game 1 was an embarrassment to their game, I'm going to pull up this clip of Dallas star Essa Lindell from Game 3 against St. Louis last night. If you're going to go that hard, let me bring this to you as Exhibit A. The Stars lose that game 4-3. But even worse, Lindell lost his dignity. And once that happens, you're not getting it back. And no, I'm not talking about Lindell being lost at sea and flailing about when Pat Maroon scored the game winner with less than two minutes to go. I mean, not an ideal situation, but I'm not talking about this. Back
0: behind the net. Maroon with it. Out in front. The Dallas Stars are not going to be happy with this. They think Maroon interfered. Bowmeister gets a puck deep. You see Maroon right there? He puts his man down, and that gives him separation. He's up, able to put it up and over. He knocks Essa Lindell down. You see Lindell sprawled out. His man is Maroon. Maroon gets it and just beats Ben Bishop.
1: Yeah, that's not good. That's not good at all if you're Lindell. Not good at all to be on your face with the game winner right there. Not good. But this is worse. This is way, way worse.
0: Penalty kill at the beginning of the period that
4: reinvigorated the St. Louis Blues. See if they can carry that momentum here at the end of the period.
0: Lindell was knocked hard to the boards. Knocked down by Bortuzzo. He's going to get a diving. Lindell will get a dive and Bortuzzo will get a cross-check. And then will right. set up to the ice again, Pierre. Yeah, they, listen, they wanted Bortuzzo in the lineup. So Bortuzzo's getting two for cross-checking and embellishment to Lindell. Yeah, your arms don't go flying when you cross-check. Yeah, sorry, but your arms don't go flying. That was another.
4: I think it was that second one that really got the embellishment yeah, call, and then yeah, maybe maybe,
0: uh, maybe perhaps the third. So Bortuzzo for cross-checking. Liddell for embellishment.
1: Embellishment. Embellishment. Man, that's a good way to put it. Is that what they're calling that now? Embellishment? That was so much worse than being face-first on the ice for the game winner. So much worse. But the radio call from KMOX is so much better.
0: Bortuzzo drops Lindell down. Lindell dives. Lindell dives again. Call him for, put him in the box for being Greg Luganis, And then he dives again. Essa Lindell just dove three times. And the referee was going to put Robert Bortuzzo in the penalty box for cross-checking. Lindell in the penalty box for embellishment diving. Then Lindell just dove a third
1: time. Quote, what an absolute farce. I'm not sure the last time I heard a radio call that included the phrase, what an absolute farce. What an absolute farce. But that was an absolute farce. Because he dove not once, not twice, but three times. Each flop more embarrassing and more disgraceful than the one before it. What a clown show. What an absolute joke. Who needs the triple Lindy? When you've now got the triple Lindell. So he gets two minutes for embellishment. Two minutes. Gotta be banned for life. Forget being banned by the league. Gotta ban himself. That wasn't just low rent. That was embarrassing. Have you ever seen such self-inflicted humiliation? Not even on the soccer pitch. I'm not sure what was more insane. Lindell diving the first time or him diving a second time, or him diving a third time, or the fact that Robert Bortuzzo kept hitting him. But then again, like I've always said, you get knocked down, but you get back up again. You dust yourself off, and then you flop again. It's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get up and flop. Like I'm not going to say it was karma that Lindell was on the ice for the game-losing goal, but it sure as hell felt like karma, right? This guy flopping, embellishing, and what do you know? This guy's on the ice for the game winner. But then again, being beaten for a game winner is not the end of the world. It's bad, but it's not the end of the world. It's bad, but it happens. It's part of the game. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. Being involved in giving up the game-winning goal is crappy, but you can always bounce back from that. You can make a good play in the next game. You can erase that from the record. But you cannot bounce back from this.
0: Bortuzzo drops Lindell down. Lindell dives. Lindell dives again. Call him for, put him in the box for being Greg Luganis, And then he dives again. Essa Lindell just dove three times. And the referee was going to put Robert Bortuzzo in the penalty box for cross-checking. Lindell in the penalty box for embellishment diving. Then Lindell just dove a third time.
1: What an absolute farce! Thought the guy checked himself. I thought he was going to say, What an absolute. uh, What an absolute farce. You can't bounce back from that. You cannot bounce back from that. Well, actually, he probably will bounce back from that and then flop a fourth time. No, you don't bounce back from that. The triple Lindell is now a permanent stain on his record. And yes, I know hockey fans, the NHL playoffs are the toughest playoffs. It's an absolute meat grinder. But, but, and it pains me to have to check you, but somebody has to. If you're going to come in here and tell me every single time that the playoffs roll around, you've got to own this also. Because as great as the sport is, as great as that postseason is, that was an absolute low point. I mean, that really was embarrassing. And while we see it in just about every other sport, I did not think that I would see it in the NHL, and I know you did neither, or you wouldn't come in here and hammer away so hard whenever you see it in another sport. Like I said about the Rockets, selling a call is one thing. Going down like you got hit with a taser blast is another, especially on incidental contact. Refs aren't buying that crap, and neither is anybody else. And once you lose that dignity, you can never get it back. Ask Lindell. In the box
0: for being and now, every Gators. time,
1: NHL fan, you come in here and say, that would never happen in our sport, everybody will say, oh, yeah? What about Lindell? What about the triple Lindell? Don't tell me that won't happen in your sport. It did.
0: What an absolute farce.
1: What an absolute farce. An absolute karma. Hockey gods ain't having that. Puck don't lie. Puck, don't lie. Of course, this guy was on the ice. Puck, that puck don't lie. don't lie. That puck don't lie. Don't of course, he was on the ice for the game what losing absolute goal. absolute
0: first. I love when you talk hockey.
1: Marcus Simeon is my guest. Marcus, good to have you back. How are you?
2: Hey, Jim. What's going on?
1: What's up, bud? How are you feeling? How are things? Uh,
2: I'm feeling good. You know, it's a little chilly in Boston, but not too bad. Uh, just sitting here. At Fenway Park, watching uh, some early batting practice, so everything's good.
1: Good. Good to visit with you. All right, so if we talk about this matchup, let me first ask you about last season in the sense that there were not a lot of expectations from outside the clubhouse, but I always got the sense that you guys felt that you had something special within. When you look back on last season and that run of the postseason, what was the experience like, and then how valuable is that right now?
2: Oh, that was amazing. I mean, my first three years here in Oakland, um, you know, we, most of it was spent in last place. So, uh, we started off slow and then we got the young guys up. We, we, we revamped the bullpen and played some good defense and, uh, we've got guys who can hit the ball out of the ballpark. So we, we really learned our identity and we played really well in the second half.
1: We were talking to Marcus Simeon. Now, you're off to a great start this season, as I mentioned at the top. You're among the league leaders in batting average, runs, and walks earlier this season. Marcus, you said, quote, I'm just trying to hit the ball hard. Very simple. I'm prepared. Do your homework and just know who you're facing, end quote. I mean, it sounds really simple, but is it really that simple?
2: Well, when you're going good, sometimes it feels that simple, but you're going to have days where you struggle and uh, you try and figure out what went wrong, but that 's kind of the foundation of um, what helps me and when i 'm going good that 's what I do so this is a tough league. guys do their homework on us, and uh, you got to make adjustments when needed
1: All right so you were in the leadoff spot last night, but you 've had at least twelve at bats in four different lineup spots this year. Again, from the outside, it seems like it doesn't really matter where they put you in the order. You're going to put up numbers. Does your approach change depending on the spot in the order, or does it just go back to what you and I are talking about? Keep it simple. Hit the ball hard.
2: Yeah, they've been moving me around the last uh, – basically my whole time here in Oakland. i have had a lot of different uh, pieces to our lineup, and I just told Bob, I said, as long as I'm out there, I'm, I don't care. And right now, I'm getting on base a lot, so they put me at leadoff. And, um, you know, we've been struggling as of late, but once we get everybody going, I think we'll have a pretty balanced lineup.
1: Now, listen, looking at your background, you're one of a handful of guys in Major League Baseball to have at least 10 home runs and 10 stolen bases in four straight years. But when you look back, how different are you now as a player than you were, say, even four years ago?
2: Oh, uh, Very different. I mean, I... I still have the same mindset where I want to be out there every day. My goal is to play 162. Uh, A couple of those years I had um, paternity leave or maybe an injury, but it's always my goal is to be out there and be durable. Um, You know, my my game has changed because I'm a more confident player. I'm more experienced. Um, My mechanics are a lot cleaner than they used to on the defensive end. Uh, My approach is better as a hitter. And, you know, I just want to keep working on those things every day because you you don't want to take those things for granted.
1: Listen, before you go, I want to hit you up on both those things. In terms of approach as a hitter, if we were to go back, say, to 2016, you hit 27 home runs that year, but your batting average might not have been where you wanted it. At the same time, you could have very easily doubled down on power and said, look, this is who I am. I'm a home run hitter. That's where the money is. But it seems like you worked to become a better all-around player. Why was that?
2: Well yeah I mean twenty sixteen I felt um, you know my I was strong my my power was there, um, you know, I think ironically, working every day on defense with wash got my legs extremely strong just uh you know we did a lot out there, so um my power my power jumped up, and then the next year I had the wrist injury, so then it was uh working back from that and uh, the the power is slowly coming back, but um, during that time i I watched a lot of baseball, and I just uh, tried to formulate a better approach to get on base a lot more. That's going to help us win more games.
1: Right, so Wash is Ron Washington. I'll ask you about him in a minute. So you and I have also talked in the past about the work you put in defensively. And last season, as I mentioned, you were a Gold Glove finalist. You were among the leaders in runs saved. You're not in for the awards, per se, but what did that honor mean to you, given the work you put in?
2: Oh, it meant a lot. You know, our entire infield we were we were finalists. You know, two of them won. Jed was close. Um, for me, I knew uh, Andrelton Simmons. You know, he's he's won his fair share of Gold Gloves. That's a tough guy to to beat, uh, as well as Lindor. You got Correa, Bogarts. Uh, there's some some more young guys in the mix now. So it's a tough position to win a Gold Glove in. So it's special to be a part of uh, that
1: group. Oh, dude, they're tough. That is a tough, tough gig. They can all pick it. Now, there are a lot of coaches who would put in some extra time with a player, but from the outside, again, it seemed like Wash really went the extra mile with you because of who he is, because of who you are, and how hard you work. How would you describe what it's like to work with him and what he's meant to you in your game?
2: Wash is the best. I think he's the best in the business. Atlanta's very, very lucky to have him. Uh, you see what he did early on with, with the uh, the older A's guys like Sahada, Xavi, Mark Ellis. He had some good, good infielders. And, um, you know, once he came back to Oakland, uh, we were very you know, just happy to have someone with that energy come out there every day and be willing to work to get us better. Uh, we worked every day for about almost two years. Uh, whether it was just on the side or out there on the on the diamond, we did something every day, and that's what got me better.
1: Yeah, Marcus, one last thought. You're living the life. You're in the show. You've earned it. You put in the work. It's paying off. It's a great thing. I Personally, I love college baseball. I love college baseball. What was that experience like for you, and especially playing in the Bay Area?
2: Uh, playing at Cal was great because that's home for me. That's 10 minutes from my hometown in El Cerrito, California. Um, Both of my parents graduated from Cal as well. So I got to, I got to play college ball at home and have a lot of family watch. And the same goes now. I'm at home playing for the A's and uh, family gets to come support me. So it's nice when you, you know, you may have a bad game every now and then to have some family waiting for you, supporting you and put a smile on your face.
1: Dude, that's storybook stuff right there. Oakland is at Boston this evening. The A's, just four games out of first in the AL West. Shortstop, Marcus Simeon off to a quick start. Marcus, always good to have you on this show. Good to get caught up. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Jim. Connor in Vegas. Hey, Connor, how are you? Jimmy, who's this new guy in the background? He looks like a snake in a human suit. Do you remember when St. Patrick chased all the
0: snakes out of Ireland? Well, that one there... Put on a Lex Luthor skin suit and is pretending to have been Phil Collins ever since. Jimmy, how are you going to go from all that hair on Desmondy to, to all that boldness? Patrick Stewart thinks that guy's a big bold. And Jimmy, Jimmy, I need you to do me a favor. Because I don't like the way the snake man is looking at little Alvy. He definitely thinks he's a wee snack. Jimmy, don't ever leave the snake man alone with little Alvy. He'll definitely
1: eat him. Connor in Vegas, rack him, the snake man. Don't ever leave the snake man with Alvy. What do you say? How do you go from a guy like Dasmati with all that hair to a bald guy? Good night now. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy.
4: You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.